You're jumping into the end of a series which we've been kind of moving through all summer long. We're actually in week 14 of this 17-week summer series where we've sort of taken this um, kind of an in-depth yet kind of kind of overview, if you will. It's an overview, but it points we went really deep into this sort of study on the names of God, names that God has both given himself and that people have given God throughout history and time. It's been an exploration that has taken us from the first verse in Genesis into Revelation, and we've gone through a lot of Scripture in between. And what we've explored and seen is that God's names are very intentional in Scripture, and they point us to parts of who he is and his character and his nature, and they tell us a lot about him. And so we've explored everything from Yahweh, the most sacred and holy and righteous name that God has, the name that couldn't even be spoken because God in all of his holiness was draped in this wonder, to Elohim, creator, to Jehovah Rapha, God the healer, to Brandon last week talking about Jesus as the light of the world, right? We've explored all these things in between. What we've learned along the way is that God is so deeply interconnected with his oneness that all of these names, while are part of his character, don't begin to make up the whole of his character until you put them all together. And then you have this incredible picture of this depth of God that is almost unfathomable. And so it encompasses the full range of the Trinity as well. God the Father, Creator, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All these sort of pictures rolled in together. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a name that is both attributed to God the Father and to Jesus the Son. And when it's used in Scripture, it's actually used in both instances. As we're going to see in our study of 1 Timothy this morning, the idea of King of Kings and Lord of Lords is used to reference God the Father. But in Revelation, it's used twice to reference Jesus the Son. And so we have this beautiful interconnected oneness of the Father and Son, on which they're both using a name that can only be ascribed and used to God himself. What we're going to learn in this picture is this powerful proclamation that God is overall. That there is nothing in your life that is bigger than he is. No struggle, no authority on earth, or no authority in your heart takes precedent over the nature of who God is. And we're going to do it in a little different way this morning because <clears throat> what we've been doing is we've been looking at this name and unpacking the scripture around it. But what I found when I was going through 1 Timothy this week is that the lead up to the name is really powerful, what Paul is trying to teach his disciple Timothy, and I don't want us to miss it. So we're going to do all the ramp up, and then we're going to get to our name, which is going to be a little bit anticlimactic because it's a lot of the things that we've talked about. But we're going to see how the lead up to that name actually tells us a ton about the nature and character of God as well. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, you may remember the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy are essentially their encouragement or charge letters, if you will, that Paul has written to Timothy. And Paul has this really special discipling mentor relationship with Timothy. He was there and basically called Timothy into this life of service, into this life of teaching, into a life of church leadership. He was there when Timothy gave his life to the Lord, and they've had this deep relationship. And so in a lot of ways, the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are, are letters of a spiritual father to a spiritual son. Like if you had to leave your best legacy for the one that was coming behind you, the one that was going to be following up with those that you loved and cared for, that's what Paul gives Timothy. He gives him very blunt, very true, and very powerful wisdom that says, Timothy, essentially, this is who you are going to need to be as a man of God. And so it's a great letter to read to get an insight into a real beautiful relationship of what gospel partnership looks like, where Paul both loved Timothy as a son and wanted him to grow into a man that really loved 
the Lord and led like Jesus. And so it's a great, powerful letter. And he covers all kinds of things in there. But we're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, in which Paul kind of gives this, this charge, what I'm going to call the sort of anthem of the Christian life. These things that Timothy is going to have to do in order to truly walk out what's in front of him as a believer and how God and his nature is going to guide him and protect him along the way. So if you've got that, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 11. Uh, we'll pray and just sort of dive straight in this morning and see what's going on because there's a lot we want to cover. And we've got, we're going to do communion and then we've got this, I don't know, celebration of Logan. We're going to have a big party. Everybody gets poppers. No, I'm just Let down. Let's pray. God, you are so good. I love your word. I just love your word. I love that it is so living. It is alive. It is moving. It is active. Lord, you tell us that it is your very breath. God, the, the word of God is the breath of life, right? It is the theopunestos. It is the breath of God. And so, Lord, we get to interact with it. And interaction with your word is actually an interaction with you. And so this morning, we don't take that lightly. We come before you asking you to teach us, to reveal truth to us. This is not some guidebook or some directional pointing signs for the way a good life should be. This is the very authority upon which our breath and our life exists. Culture will try and tell us to alter it, but we will not. We will stand firmly upon the authoritative word of God because it is who you are. And so this morning, Lord, as we unpack it, will you teach us? Will you instruct us? Will you empower us? Will you encourage us? Will you convict us in all of those things at the same time so that we, like Timothy, may follow you better? Lord, our whole goal as a community is just to do our best to follow you like Jesus, to walk as Jesus did. And so this morning, Lord, as Paul gives these beautiful instructions to Timothy, will you make them relevant and powerful in our own life? Will you remind us of who you are, how you will never leave us nor forsake us, and how you have us no matter what the world says, no matter how hard things feel like they are at home or at school or at work, you are still God. No matter how tipsy and turby the world feels or no matter how good or bad leadership may feel around us, you are still God. So Lord, press those things into our soul this morning as we open your word. Take a moment in your own heart this morning before we open this text and dive into it as we do each Sunday morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. Ask him to instruct your heart, to convict you, whatever it is, just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Be in the active habit of not wanting to believe what I say, but to have the word of God pressed upon your heart by the Holy Spirit. So ask the Lord to teach your soul. <clears throat> As you do that, pray for the people around you, the ones sitting beside you or in front of you or whoever they may be, even if you don't know their names. If you're here for the first time, that's perfectly fine. Just pray. Just whisper. Just say, God, teach this person. God, I pray that they would encounter you today. Be in the habit of praying for the people around you. Care about their spiritual growth. We've talked a lot about this over the months. Just be someone that wants to see the people around you come to know Christ more. Lord, we turn our, turn our morning over to you. You are of God and Lord of all. There is nothing that is before you or above you. And so teach our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
So 1 Timothy 6 is this charge, this encouragement of sorts in which Paul is wrapping up this first letter that he's written to Timothy. And and he's going to basically encourage him with what I see really in the first few verses as this anthem, for lack of a better word, of the Christian life. This, This banner, this thing in which he should be living into and doing these pieces that are there. And the things that he's going to have to do as a man of God, as someone that's going to pursue a life that follows Christ, these things have to be done. and They're very transferable to you and to me. And then he's going to go into the reasons why, which we're going to discover a little bit more about the holiness of God. And we're going to come headlong into this name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But I don't want to miss what happens in verse 6 in order to get there because it's very, very powerful. And so this is what Paul says to Timothy in, uh, in verse 6. We'll start in verse 11 as we look at this sort of challenge, this call, this charge, this anthem, if you will. This is what he says in verse 11. Actually, let's, yeah, let's do a verse 11. How about that? We'll back up in a minute. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the, of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made, when you made the good confession and the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives you everything and Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light and whom no one has seen or can see. To him be all honor and might forever. Amen. So he gets to this closing section of the book and he says, Timothy, listen, there are some instructions that I'm going to give you that you're going to have to live by. It's going to be this anthem, this charge, this calling of sorts, and they're really important things, so I want you to pay attention to them, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but hear me say them. And he leads off with the first one, which is this idea of flee. And he says, you, right? Man of God, flee from all this. Which, of course, begs the question, what is all this, right? So if you look up at chapter 3 or verse 3 for just a moment, he basically gives this description. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching... He who is conceited and understands nothing. He who has unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, and malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men that corrupt the mind. and been robbed of the truth. And then he goes down there to talk about the trappings of the world, the desire for things that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with so many griefs. So he, he makes this list of things. He's like, the world, the culture, and he's talking to believers here, right? He's not just addressing this crazy world, but he's saying within the context of people you know, there are going to be people that chase conceit, that chase strife, that chase quarrels, that want to argue for the sake of arguing, that want to create bitterness and distraction. There are going to be people in your realm in which you get in these quarrelsome wars with, if you will, semantical wars, wars of words within the body of Christ itself. And it's going to cause envy and it's going to cause strife. 
And it's going to begin to tear the church apart from that. And what is more, you're also going to be conflicted because you're going to come into contact with people that love the world, like love the cultural aspect of the world and all of its trappings and the worldliness, the money, the things, chasing after things that won't give them eternal glory, satisfaction, but are of this world. And he said many have wandered away from the faith because they've chased money. And money is not just a paper. It's the, the idea of the material, right? So he says, listen, Timothy, you're going to be confronted with all this. You're going to want to be in a place where these things are, are, are pressuring your life and you're going to be around them. And he says, I want you to understand something. Flee from all this. Flee from it. The first thing that you've got to do as a man of God is you've got to flee from the things of the world, the things that bring about the conceit, the quarreling, the arguing, the part of you that just wants to, to be right. The part of you that wants to prove a point. The part of you that wants to chase the world, that wants to have the things the world says you should have. Whatever that was in Timothy's day, whether it was land or fame or power or status, the people in the church were going to give it to him because he was Paul's disciple, Timothy. Perhaps, you know, he was going to be in the next line of what we would do with celebritizing pastors in our Western culture. You're going to be presented with the idea of chasing what the world says you could be. And many have wandered because they've chased money or fame or power or the world, and you've got to flee from it. He's not saying resist it, right? He's not saying, hey, just try and stay away from that stuff. He's saying, literally, Timothy, you've got to run the other way. And a lot of us in our Western culture, we like to dance with the world. We like to dance with culture, and we'll do just enough to not have to fully engage ourselves till we say it's ours, but we flirt with it. Right? We don't want to go all the way. We just want to flirt with the idea of the world. We want to have our hand in that place where we can chase the material, but we can honestly say, I'm not fully in love with money. But what we learn is that we can't give our heart fully to Christ and still be connected to the world. What we see in Scripture is that we have to be devoted to Christ and rejecting the ways of the world. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't have things, but what it means is those things can't have us. And a lot of times our pursuit of things, they begin to take hold of us. It begins to be all we think of. I gotta get out of this house. I gotta get out of this job. We gotta save more money. I gotta work for retirement. Whatever those things are, begin to press them. Or I'm so bent on being right to win an argument with my spouse that I'll just literally stomp on her heart in order to be right because I'm quarrelsome. I wanna be proved. My pride rises up in me. I wanna be right at work. And, and Paul says to Timothy, man of God, right? It's a title he uses. Man of God, flee from all this. In other words, men and women of God don't pursue these things. They flee from them. So he says, listen, the first part of this anthem of the Christian life is to flee from all of that, right? Which means if those things are making a residence in your heart this morning, we've got to turn. And we have to run. And not only turn and run, we have to pursue something else. It's the one thing to run away from something. It's another thing to run away in pursuit of something, right? So you can flee the bad things just to run into another dark place. That's easy to do. It's easy to run in the middle of the night from an alley that's scary into another alley that's equally as scary. Running from something, if you're not running to something, is equally as bad. So he says, instead of that, flee from all that and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So he says, instead of just saying, I'm not going to take part in the world, I'm not going to get caught up in its trappings and the worldliness and the, and the security and, and those prideful things that say, I must be right or I want to be correct, instead of just not trying to do those things, actually pursue the opposite of all those things, godliness, righteousness, gentleness, faith, love. Be a pursuer of the things of God. 
What's really powerful about this to me is that it's one thing to just constantly try and tell yourself not to engage in things, right? I'm not going to engage in that fight online. I'm not going to, you know, say something to my mom in that Facebook post. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm also not going to get caught up in wanting to have a brand new car or a brand new house or a brand new bike or whatever it is that it feels like that's going to let people look at me and think I've got, I'm not going to get caught up in the war at words at work. I'm not going to do all that. But I'm just going to stand here and keep trying to not do it. It's another thing to turn and to go, I want to pursue something so wholly different that those things aren't even a part of my thought process. Like, I want to pursue. And think about that idea of pursuing. Like, I want to relentlessly chase until I find and seize, right? I want to pursue something. means I'm not going to give up on it. Think of of a police officer in pursuit of someone, right? My sole objective is to capture whatever that is. And in this case, the man of God, the person of God, is pursuing to capture the things of God. Like, I want my life to seize love, to seize gentleness, to seize righteousness, to seize those things so that they are mine. I want to pursue them until I find them. So it's one thing to say, I'm not going to let the world tie me up. It's another thing to say, I'm going to pursue the things of God, godliness and righteousness, in my house and in my heart. I want our household to bleed the things of God from its very pores, right? I want them to be what we exhibit, love and faith and gentleness and righteousness. And this is what he's telling Timothy. It's not good enough just to stand there and say, the world doesn't get me. I'm not letting it seize my heart. He says, where we take that is, I am in full pursuit of the things of God. So we have this idea of fleeing. We have this idea of pursuing. And then he goes on to say this. He says, as you pursue these things, right, gentleness and endurance and faith and godliness and righteousness, fight the good fight of faith. So we have this idea of fleeing, pursuing, and fighting. Is there such a thing as a good fight? You absolutely better believe that there is such a thing as a good fight in the Christian life. The Bible talks a lot about us being at war against sin and death. And Paul here tells Timothy that once you flee and once you pursue, you are going to have to fight. And you want to know why? Because the enemy will not go silently into the shadows. When you begin to change your cultural mindset to say, the things of the world won't own me, I won't live into them, I'm not going to pursue those things, I'm instead going to pursue the things of God, the moment that begins to happen in your life is the the moment the enemy begins to come at you full speed. And Paul knows that, and so he says, Timothy, I want you to prepare for a fight. And it's going to be a good fight because you're fighting for the right things. Most of our Christian lives are spent fighting for the wrong things. But Paul says there's a good fight. And then when you turn from the world and you pursue the things of God, you are going to have to be prepared for it because the enemy will not go away. The enemy does not want you to pursue the things of God. He certainly does not want you to turn from all the cultural things that say this is what brings about self-pleasure. This is what will bring about your happiness, to have these things, to win these things, to be this kind of man or woman. And you say, no, no, that's not what Scripture says. I'm going to pursue the things of God. And the enemy is going to do everything he can to not only distract you, but to actively turn you. He's going to bring people and words and things into your life that are going to hurt, that are going to distract, that are going to disorient to trying to get you to turn your attention back away from the things of God and onto the things of the world. That's all the enemy has on the believer. He cannot seize you back. You have been saved and redeemed and marked and you are his. You belong to the Lord. You cannot be taken out of his hand. Scripture says no one can snatch you from me. So what can the enemy do? The enemy can revert your attention from the things of God back to the things of the world so that it renders you not only ineffective, but renders your heart broken. And Paul says to Timothy, you man of God, 
better be ready to fight the good fight. And it's a good fight of faith. And fights, they take punches. You're going to take a few right in the face. You're also going to have to give a few. And you're going to fight for what you know to be true. Because the world's going to come at you. And it's going to come at you in a funny way. It's not going to come at you in the, the way where all the Satanists get together and they're like, hey, you're wrong. It's going to come in the form of the people that you love the most, like your mom or your sister or your brother or that guy at work that begin to just say things that eat at your soul because that's the way the enemy works. And he takes the church apart from within. The church has never fallen apart from the outside. It falls apart from within. Where bitterness and envy and strife and all those things, conceit, quarrels, they begin to populate. They begin to fester. And they turn into resentment. And resentment always leads to death. It's the killer of marriages, resentment. It leads to death. And so he says, be prepared, man of God, to fight the fight. So flee, pursue, fight. And then he says, and take hold of that which is yours. Right? He says, so take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he says, not only are you going to flee, you're going to pursue, you're going to fight. And when you win, you are going to take hold of, or why in the middle of that, you're going to take hold of what is yours when you made that good confession confession. You're going to take hold of what? Eternal life. So there was a moment in Timothy's life where he made a confession. And really the Hebrew word there is a homologio, which is a word for profession, like a saying the same as. It's proclaiming something. It's not a confession of like, oh, I I did this wrong. It's a profession. And he said there was a moment where Timothy made a profession in front of a bunch of people that he believed Jesus And in that moment, he was given something. And you know what that something was? It tells us right there. It was eternal life. And so as you flee and as you pursue and as you fight, you take hold of the eternal life that is yours when you made the profession. Meaning that when you surrendered your life to Christ, when you gave this profession, you were given something. This incredible, beautiful gift, which is eternal life. And he says, take hold of it. How do we take hold of eternal life? Doesn't that happen when we die? Not for the believer. Right? For the believer, eternal life begins the moment we give our life to Christ. It's the idea of abundant, true, full life here on earth. We're not just looking forward to something. The biggest gift of, Brandon and I were talking about this the other day, the biggest gift of eternal life is not what happens when we die, although that's really great. The biggest gift really is that we begin to live today. Like we're not just holding our breath until we take our last. Like we are called to have full, real, abundant life here on earth that is beautiful and lovely and amazing and full. And that is ours. And Paul says, seize that, Timothy. It's yours. You've been given it. If you are living in a place of dread or struggle and you are not seizing the glorious life that God has called you to, even in the middle of struggle, we're missing something. And he says, you're missing the eternal life that basically you were given when you made that profession. And you weren't alone because you knew who else made that profession. He goes on to say that Jesus himself made that profession. Who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So here's what happened. If you remember John's account, it's a great one. Where Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it's as you say except my kingdom's not from here. So, yes and no. And the Pharisees lose their minds. And so what does Pilate do? He has that inscription written, King of the Jews, as a punch in the face, and he puts it right on top of the cross when Jesus is nailed. 
Jesus' profession in front of Pilate was essentially, yeah, yeah, I'm king, but not like you're thinking. I'm a king in which there is no other authority. And at that moment, Jesus and all the Jews would have known had just proclaimed himself as the Messiah. He made the good confession, like, this is who I am. And so what Paul says to Timothy is just as Jesus did that before Pilate, proclaiming who he is, you made this good confession in front of all these people. And in that moment, in that breath, eternal life is yours. But that eternal life doesn't begin later, Timothy. It begins now. As believers, we are literally called to this beautiful, amazing, true, and real life now. I heard Vody Bauckham, who's a preacher, once say, look, you know, the, the saying right now is, hey, he's living his best life or whatever it is, you know. And he said one time, he says, if you're living your best life here on earth, you're going to hell, right? Which is incredibly true, except for the one point, which is we're called to have this beautiful life in Christ here, but it's not our best life, right? We are called to have this abundant thing, but the, the reality is if you're living your best life here, you're going to hell because the best life is what waits for you on the other end. But as a believer, it's not that we hold our breath waiting for that. We're actually called to this abundant, beautiful, incredible thing now, which means we're not waiting through the mediocrity of life, going through a dismal marriage or dismal work life or struggling with our children, just trying to make our financial ends meet so that we slog through the mire to get to the other end and say, finally, I get out of this. God wants us to love our life here. He wants us to love the people around us, to find full, abundant, true life and joy in this moment. If you are not living in that, you have to ask yourself, am I fleeing, pursuing, fighting, and taking hold of what is mine? Because the moment you gave your life to Christ and you made that confession where you stood after, during your baptism or at some point in time, whether that was when you were a kid or when you were an adult, and you said, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. In that moment, in that breath, in that second, in this miraculous, wondrous moment of time, God transfers you from life to death, from death to life. And life begins to be truly livable in a glorious, amazing way. And that's what he's telling Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, flee from the garbage of the world Pursue the things of God. Fight. Do not go down. Fight. And take hold of what is already yours. Right? And he said, just as Jesus made that confession, you stand on your confession and you do it until when? He says, you do it until Christ returns. In other words, Jesus is coming back. Whether he comes back or you die first, whichever one, you live this way, man of God. Right? So why? Here's where Paul begins to make the shift to who God is. So he says, as, as Jesus made that confession before, keep this command without spot or blame uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, coming back. And then he says this, which God will bring about in his own time. So in other words, don't get hung up in when Christ is coming back. God will bring it back in his own time. But whether you die or he comes first, you are going to hold on to this charge. You're going to fight. You're going to flee. You're going to pursue. You're going to take hold of. You're going to do all this until Christ returns or until you die. And it's going to be glorious and amazing. As a man of God, this is your charge. Do your best without splot or blemish, right? He's leading him. He's saying this, and he says, this is the reason you're going to do it. Because you have one blessed, you have one blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see. To him be all honor and might forever. So he says, listen, Timothy, the reason you're going to do this is not because you can do it on your own power. None of us can. You cannot flee the enemy. You cannot run from the world. You cannot pursue the things of God. You cannot fight the good fight. You cannot take hold of salvation. You can't do any of that on your own. You're going to need the power 
of the one true God. And he says, this is why we do this, right? Because you can't sustain it on your own. And he says, let me tell you a little bit about the God that will sustain you as a reminder. These are not new things to Timothy, but as a reminder. He says, you're going to do this because of the one, right? The blessed and the one and only ruler. Now, what's happening right now historically is that Rome is basically occupying most of the known world. And that is a brutal regime. It is brutal. Those of you who remember our study of the book of Acts, Nero was a horrible emperor who believed himself to be God and murdered hundreds of thousands of believers. The ruling authorities at the time were believed to be, at that point in time, at least in their own mind, gods. And so he says this, you are living in a culture in a time that is at war with you, unlike anything that you and I have ever experienced, right? Our war is mainly in inconveniences. This is a war for your life, is what Timothy is facing. That proclaiming yourself as a Christian, at best would get you killed, at worst would get you tortured, and all of your family. And so he says this, let me explain something to you. The world's going to tell you there's more than one ruler. There's not. He says that ruler is blessed. In other words, that ruler is holy and righteous and mighty. And that ruler, there is only one. It's going to tell you there's others, but there's not. There is one blessed ruler. And let me tell you about him. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now that phrase, like I told you, is only used three times in that configuration in all of Scripture. It's used twice in Revelation, once here. Here it's referring to God the Father, and Revelation refers to Jesus the Son. But in every instance, it's used this way. He is the King, capital K, of kings, lowercase k. He is the Lord, capital L, of lowercase lords. And the reason it's used that way is to explain this sort of divine kind of movement, right? Same thing we learned back in week two of this when we studied the name Elohim. If you remember, Elohim literally is God's name that's used the most in all of Scripture, and it means the mighty one, the creator, the one who puts all things together, the one in which there is no one above. And in Genesis, we learn that the mighty one, Elohim, has this similar phrase in which is used God of gods and Lord of lords. Same configuration. What we learn there and what's transferable to this is that Elohim, God the mighty one, is king, capital K, of all other earthly kings. Whatever kings there may be, whatever kings this world may say need to set up, whether those are ideologies or those are real rulers and counselors and kings and presidents, Elohim, the capital K king, is bigger and mightier than all of them, even Nero. It also goes on to say, and that Elohim, creating mighty, holy God, right, the one who holds all authority, is the capital L Lord, of all lords. And you can insert whatever lords you want to there in your own life. We all have them. A lord is anything that we give power in our life to. It doesn't have to be a physical person. A lot of times a lord in our life can be the things that we're subject to. Worry, anxiety, fear, strife. Right? It might take a personal form. As, as a king, it might be like an ideology or a political party. Or it might be an earthly ruler or a celebrity something or some kind of worldly picture of wealth or whatever, or just the things we put in our life that begin to rule our hearts. Comparing ourselves with our neighbor or looking in the mirror and not loving what God created. Whatever becomes a Lord, an ideology, an idol, a thing, that begins to rule our life. The things that we want to pursue, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I hit this number by the age of 65. Or I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I'm this successful and I get moved up here or there. Or I'm going to do everything I can to alter the way that I look so that I feel about myself a way that puts me above other people, 
I'm going to do all of the things and I'm going to make sure that people know them. I'm going to post it out loud on social media so that people see me. I'm going to idolize myself. I'm going to make people see what I'm worth. Or the opposite of that, which is oftentimes I'm going to find a way to bury myself in fear and worry and anxiety. I'm going to believe that God keeps his promises for everybody else except me. These things are actually kings and they're actually lords. And what God is, what Paul is saying to Timothy is that God makes himself known as the ruler and authority of all of these things. There is no king, no political party, no ideology, no right, no left, no president, no parliament, no counselor, no senator that is bigger than God. Now, what does that mean that we are not subject to the rules of the land that we live upon? Absolutely not. You are. But what it does mean is that those things will never supplant the word of God as authoritative in our life. So no matter how much culture pushes them, propagates them, and tells us, they do not become the authority. We may, while we live here, have to obey laws until they run headlong into the word of God. And this is a little bit what Brandon got into last week, right? Talking about how culture will try and push our definitions that are laid strongly out in God's word. And we are stuck in the place as believers of not wanting to offend, but wanting to stand deeply and truly on the authoritative word of God. And there's ways to do it, right? But at the same time, we don't bend or subjugate the authority of God's word to the whims of culture or to the whispers of leaders or to the kings and lords of the world that are lowercase k's and lowercase l's. There is one blessed and one true king. And that is what Paul is telling Timothy. The world's going to tell you there's a bunch and you've got to bow to all of them. And I'm going to tell you there's only one and he's the only one that you bow to. You can live under the others, but they aren't your king and they aren't your Lord. Because Jesus himself, God the Father, those are the people that are the gods that are are one God, absolutely, but given the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he says, Timothy, what you face is going to be deeply ridden with challenges. And this becomes the challenge of the Christian life, right? To live for a king, a true king, to live for a Lord, the only true Lord, in a culture that wants to discredit all of it. That wants to change definitions on you. Change definitions of everything from gender to life. For the pleasing of the masses. And there's ways to live as a believer in which we honor people but never subjugate or bow to anything other than the authority of the word of God and God himself, the king of kings. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy, right? There's one blessed and only one ruler. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Listen to what else he says. That king is immortal. He's immortal. It's a very cool word, right? Like immortal means he always was and always will be. That's all it means. Every other ruler that we have ever seen here on earth had a beginning and an end. Comes and goes. <clears throat> we all hate Trump. We all hate Biden. They all come and go, right? Go back as far as you want to. The only king and ruler that's never come and gone is the Lord. He is immortal. He was before time began. Time, power. They have nothing on God. He made all of that. It is subject to him. We learn with Elohim that he is creator God. He is not 
subject to anything this world has or says or does. Which means, why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? I think I told a short little story I told not too long ago. When one of these presidents was elected, I don't even tell you which one. It doesn't even matter. I had somebody call me and say, Trip, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? And I, I was honestly like we're kidding at first. And this, this person's just bawling. And I thought, well, we're going to live just fine, right? Because that's not our king. He's not our lord. He's not our ruler. It's just a person. God wins. Like, we're going to live the same way they've lived through centuries upon centuries, the same way that Paul and Timothy lived under Nero. You think this is hard? Back up. You know, we're going to be all right. But here's the deal. We're going to be all right because we don't put our hope in earthly people. If your hope is in the next president, you are broken and wrong. Now, great, we can have a great leader. That'd be wonderful. But the reality is our hope isn't in that person. It's the person. And they're flawed and broken and everything they are. There's only one blessed and true ruler. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And for the believer, that's where our hope is. And the immortal one. The one who was before all of them. And the one who actually, David said, put that person together. Broken or not. Believer or not. God knit them together. And then Paul adds in this beautiful gem. And I'll wrap it all up with this. And this is so cool. He says, the immortal, right? He is immortal. And who lives in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can't see. Now, I don't know if Brandon, I didn't finish Brandon's sermon online, but I'm sure it was great. He may have got into this or not. I don't know if he got Did you get into that at all? Okay, he didn't get into this. Okay, so this is super cool. All right, so it's online. I should check it out. Probably great. I'm sure it's awesome. Brandon's awesome. Who lives in unapproachable light, right? So like this, this kind of dichotomy of light and dark, Brandon got into last week, is unbelievable, right? That the, the sort of light pierces the darkness, this incredible thing. But he's coming from Paul. Think about this for a moment. He says, this holy, immortal, king of kings, lord of lords, the blessed and only true king, who is unapproachable by humanity because he is so holy, lives in unapproachable light. Now, why is that so powerful for Paul? Do you remember Paul's moment of great confession? Armed with a letter from the high priest, headed down the road to Damascus to essentially persecute, capture, imprison, and kill Christians. And what happens? This light, which Paul describes to King Agrippa later on in Scripture, as a thousand times brighter than the sun, literally knocks him to the ground and blinds him. And Paul says, who is it? And, and out of the light comes this voice that says, this is Jesus whom you're persecuting. They led him down to the town, right? And he had to wait there blinded for three days until the Holy Spirit shows up and Paul ends up making the great confession. Changes the course of life and history. But what came out of that light was the voice of the one that was unapproachable. And so what Paul's telling Timothy is from his own story, he's saying, this holy, immortal, majestic, mighty, king of kings and lord of lords, who has never been seen in all of his glory by anyone and can't be seen by anyone because he's so holy, lives in an unapproachable light. Meaning that the only way is that God draws us to himself. You're not going to find it on your own, Timothy. He goes, this holy, majestic, mighty God, I have experienced this unapproachable light and has knocked me to the ground. That is how holy God is. That's my story. Like That's how I came to know him. That unapproachable light approached me and changed me. Timothy, this stuff is true and it is real and I want you to know it. And you get this picture of this spiritual father, this spiritual son that's just saying, this is how I was saved. And he said, to that God, right, 
to that God be all glory, right? To him be all glory or all honor and might forever. Amen. And then he has a whole bunch of other stuff to say. So I just wraps it up with an amen, but I'm not done yet. But he just comes to this place where he's like, whew. And that amen, that word there in the Greek means so be it, which is super cool. So when you see it, it's like, he says, he is, he is bathed in all these things. He is the unapproachable one, the immortal one, the one that is in this, lives in this incredible light. To him be all honor and might, so be it. Yeah, he just goes, boom, mic dropper. The reason this is so great to me is because <clears throat> we live in a world in which we are tossed about on the waves of the ocean, man. Comes and goes, right? Like that same person that gave me the phone call. How are we going to live under this league? How are we going to? Everything's crumbling, or it feels that way. It's no worse than it's always been throughout history. If you're, if you're not a history buff, just pick up any book you want to, and you will realize that at any point in time, no matter what it is, whatever that portion of history is, has dealt with the world. Horrible things. Even if you go, what wasn't that bad in the 50s? You're like, have you seen World War II? Do you know what happened in Nazi Germany? Have you experienced some of the other things that have unfolded throughout history? The world has always been at war against the light. Always. We are no different. It feels different because maybe it wasn't like that in the 80s. But the 80s had its different challenges. Try the Cold War. It's all light and dark, right? What Paul is telling Timothy is so transferable because he's saying, listen, you don't resolve yourself just to being like, ah, this is how it is. You flee. You pursue you fight and you take hold of. Why? Because God never changes. He is the immortal one. He is the only true king. You are not subject to the voices here on earth. You live under the laws of the land until it comes into conflict with the word of God. And then you stand upon what is true and whatever those consequences be, they will be. But you can rest in that because the one that was before time began has you. The one that will be after time is, has you. I have seen him. He has blinded me and knocked me down, and he is holy. Timothy, my son, trust me and trust him. That's what he's telling him. This table that we celebrate this morning, <clears throat> communion is really this incredible picture of light piercing the darkness. I mean, this is Jesus' very incarnation, the breaking in of heaven into the world. It is the picture of what God has done for us and through us. That Jesus, fully God, Stepped into humanity. Light piercing the darkness, as, uh, as John says. It's not an easing into anything. It is a radical collision of heaven and earth. And it's the picture that we get when we celebrate this table. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever trusts and believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life begins when? When we die? No. Now, in this breath, in this moment, right here, on this Sunday morning, eternal life is unfolding before you. And we have the opportunity to worship the God who gives it. And that's what this table is. It's not a denominational table. It's actually open to all those who profess faith, profess faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Paul himself tells us that we should take this very seriously. It's not something we should enter into lightly. We should examine our hearts, confess any sin that's laid out there. To understand that we are approaching the unapproachable one in a sense, right? The one that no one has ever seen. Yet we have the ability to approach through the blood of Christ and Christ alone. So this morning as we prepare to take communion, I ask you to examine your heart. To pray, to confess, and ask the Lord, the one who holds all together. The one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who is immortal and blessed and the only true king. 
to free you, to forgive you, to make his residence inside your heart. This morning we celebrate communion by means of intinction as we always do, which is a fancy way of saying as you come forward of a station in the front and a station in the back, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and eat and return. We invite you to continue standing after that word so that we may worship together. Let's pray. I'll invite our servers to come forward. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning to celebrate these incredible, unbelievable truths. Lord, we ask you to fully let our hearts be yours, that we might surrender completely and totally to you. Lord, you are our all, you are everything that we are, and you are the one true and everlasting Father. God, we ask that you would take this ordinary juice and bread and that you would transform these elements into the mystery and miraculous nature that they are, a reminder of your good and perfect work, that you are a God who forgives and frees us from sin. That you are a God who sets us apart. You are a God who calls us to flee and to pursue and to fight and to take hold of, to make this great confession to the one blessed and true ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the immortal one, the one who is unapproachable, bathed and living in glorious light. So Lord, if we celebrate this meal together, we're proclaiming these very true things until you come again. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, right, the very night that all of his disciples would scatter and they would run, he gathered with them and he took a loaf of bread and he took that bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming my death until I come again. This is what we celebrate this morning. Amen. I invite you to come and take part in this meal and remain standing as we close our time in worship. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There are precious
for the opportunity to gather this morning and to celebrate this meal, to open your word. Lord, we ask that you would be just glorified in our worship as we close our time, that you would be exalted in our lives as we live out these truths and these proclamations that you have given to Timothy through Paul. Proclamations to flee from the world, to run from the world, Lord, to pursue the things of God, the godly things, righteousness, gentleness, faith, love, to fight the good fight of faith, to not be afraid to fight the enemy who will not let these things go quietly, who will not sulk into the shadows. Lord, to take hold of the eternal life which you have promised and given us in Jesus that is ours as followers of Christ. To stand upon the confession that we made. Lord, to trust in you the blessed and true and one leader, ruler, the authority, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. God, the one who is immortal, the one who was and always will be, the one who is living in glorious, holy, beautiful light who no one has seen aside from Christ. Lord, to you be all glory, honor, in Jesus' holy and resurrected name. Let's close our time in worship this morning. up 
for the King of Kings. The God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Before you go outside, I'm asking for just two seconds to sit down, and we brought all the kids in, as you can tell. It's crazy. I'm going to invite Miss Logan Parsons to come up here for just two seconds. Logan, we want to tell you a couple of quick things, how much we love you. You can bring Bennett to win it with you. Big Benny. So for those of you that know, as a church plant, we've gone through a lot of different sort of